Blog Talk Radio. March 17th, 2013 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. It's the podcast discussing news and politics from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy, Objectivism. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and today I am likely flying solo. I might be joined later by cartoonist Bosch Faustin. If we're lucky, he might pop in here and there. I've got several topics to talk about with you. The first is altruism, which was on display in a couple places at CPAC this week. Abortion, we'll talk about it a little bit in general, but also has as it's been forced on the population in China. And we'll talk about a new law that involves anonymity and adoption in Germany. Yes, I'm using alliteration again uh, with my show, but I also have a couple other things to talk about as well including an item of good news submitted by a listener. Those of you who are in the chat room, please do participate. Uh, I see some people already chiming in. And you can call me, 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. If you do call in and you have a question, I think there is a little uh, you know, uh, icon there that you can hit and say that you have a question for me. Sometimes people call just to listen as well, so I can distinguish you there. Okay, so let's follow up first on a little story that we have from last week. Do you remember last week we had a really nice discussion with Yaron Brook from the Ayn Rand Institute about evasion? And in particular, we spent quite a bit of time talking about Mayor Bloomberg's evasion with respect to whether force was involved in his soda ban. I think everybody noticed that the soda ban was stopped by the courts just about when it was just about to go into effect. Bloomberg vows to appeal it because, of course, he's only doing it for your own good, but I was glad to see that the court uh, stopped that horrible soda ban. There's been so many jokes about it. I mean, down to Sarah Palin this weekend, sipping a big gulp at her speech at CPAC. Everyone, everyone is making fun of Bloomberg for this, so it's very good to see. But one thing that has been, I think, evaded so much this week is the imminence of the problem of the United States debt. Obama this week, many people probably saw it in the news, Obama this week said that the United States does not have an immediate crisis in terms of debt. Is that so surprising coming from Obama? No, not really. And then there's been a number of reactions. So, for example, Mark Levin uh, who's excellent talk show host, he had said, well, if there isn't an immediate crisis in terms of debt, then why does Obama insist on increasing our taxes, right? I mean, why does he have to increase all of our taxes unless there is some sort of a debt crisis? So that's one good answer. But the thing that is really disturbing is that the essentially head of the GOP in Washington right now, the man in politics in the GOP with the most power, in other words, John Boehner, our Speaker of the House, actually says that he agrees with Obama about this point. 
Uh, hat tip to Bosch Faustin here, who just turned me on to this story. It actually came through Weasel Zippers. It was originally a Newsmax story, but the headline at Newsmax was Boehner saying, I'll always oppose gay marriage. I don't care about the gay marriage stuff. This is the part of the Newsmax story that I care about. <laughs> you, you skip about halfway through, and it says, the House Speaker said he absolutely trusts President Barack Obama. Not that they don't have their differences. It says, Boehner noted that the two have a good relationship and that they're open with each other, honest with each other. But the lawmaker says they're trying to bridge some big differences. One issue they agree on, the U.S. doesn't have an immediate crisis in terms of debt. Some conservatives criticized Obama when he said last week that the country doesn't have an immediate debt crisis. It says Boehner says a debt crisis does loom in the years ahead because entitlement programs are not sustainable if they aren't changed. And he says balancing the budget will help the economy, etc. This is disturbing to say that there is no immediate crisis in terms of debt. Just to remind people, if you go, there's a U.S. debt clock that you can look at on the Internet, $16.7 trillion. And if I recall correctly, $6 trillion of this was added under Obama. This translates to $53,000 in debt per person in the United States. If you're born in the United States today, you are born $53,000 in debt thanks to the national debt. And it's more than that per taxpayer, actually, because that's that counts total population, not even all taxpayers. But no, no, it, it's, it's not an immediate debt crisis. You know, just keep spending like there's no tomorrow. Just keep throwing $250 million away at Egypt, a country there, you know, pretty much is telling us to go where the sun doesn't shine, that kind of stuff. No, don't worry about it. No big deal. This is a massive act of evasion, and to have John Boehner in on it is just the latest in a series of pathetic positions taken by Boehner. So I just wanted to follow up on that right there. In the uh, in the chat room, people are talking about uh, weasel zippers, Weasel Zipper sounds like a dirty double entendre, sounds, uh, says Zach. They had the right angle on the story, Zach, so that's really all I care about. The, the You know, the idea that Boehner and Barack Obama are buddy-buddy and that Boehner trusts the man who is destroying our country right now, I just, I, I just can't handle it. Uh, you feel like you've got no advocate at all in Washington when you have Boehner. So again, if you want to call in and talk about this stuff, 760-888-5817. And we're going to go ahead and jump into CPAC. CPAC is the place, you know, it's the Conservative Public Action Committee, I believe, is the acronym. Boy, that's dumb of me not to have memorized it before. But uh, CPAC is the annual conservative convention every year. They have a straw poll all the future candidates who might run for president seem to be kind of testing the waters at CPAC. It's an important place if you are concerned about the future of the Republican Party and the leadership of the Republican Party. The thing I wanted to point out this year is something that I think is going to set me apart from other talk radio hosts. I mean, here I am on Block Talk Radio. There's a whole bunch of conservatives here, and I might lose some listeners by criticizing some of the conservative candidates that they think are the best out there. Why? Because I'm going to explicitly point out how conservative candidates are, just like Barack Obama is, 
calling for sacrifice. Some of the very popular ones, one of them was in the top three in the CPAC, Strawpole. You know, others, other people who are at CPAC, you know, like Limbaugh, I was looking at a speech of his from a few years ago. They don't speak too much of sacrifice, but they don't explicitly counter it either. They rarely get up and say, you have a right to do things primarily for your own self-interest and then only incidentally as an act of charity for other people. Uh, to, to you know, deny that you have a moral duty to other people is very rare among conservatives or even among most libertarians. A lot of libertarians don't want to make a big deal out of it. Why? Because it doesn't earn you very many friends. I think I'd like to go to CPAC. I don't know what sort of influence I could have there, but I would like to calmly and politely go there and say to everyone assembled, your life is your own. You don't have a moral Moral duty to sacrifice to other people, and that if Republicans want to deliver a message that is different in any essence, in any essential way at all, from Barack Obama, they need to get off this idea of having a moral duty to your fellow man, uh, this idea of sacrifice to others. It needs to go. Uh, I was turned on to these topics again, or the particular quotations by Bosch Faustin. And uh, I get to thank him for doing that. But at the same time, I'm going to blame him right now because I watched Rick Santorum's entire speech at CPAC. I suffered and suffered and suffered. I watched the sweater vest dude. And it turned out that the money quote that I wanted to speak about was not in the speech itself. It was in an interview that he did that essentially recounted the speech. But in the speech, the sacrifice is more implicit than it is explicit. Those of you who watched it, how many of you watched it? Uh, Zach in the chat room says, you poor thing. Yeah, I watched it. Um, Deborah says that Santorum would be proud of me for watching his speech. Yes, because he, in his speech, talked about suffering. Now, he said that basically suffering is good so long as there is a compelling why for the suffering. And he said that in essence what Barack Obama is doing is he is taking away or attempting to take away because you can't really do this, right? You can't take away America's suffering. You can try to take it away through all sorts of government measures and redistribution, but in the end you're just going to make everybody suffer more. So it's, you know, it's phony. But it, it was a clever speech. Santorum says he's trying to take away the suffering but at the same time, take away the why of America. He, you know, that Obama is undermining what makes America distinctive and great, et cetera. And so that what Santorum wants to do is he wants to restore that why. Uh, another part of the speech that I thought was very clever and, and good was that he said that Obama wants to take the why of America and replace it with the why of the French Revolution. Very good. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the typical stuff from Santorum, he was, you know, uh, and speaking some of the language from the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, that we're endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, right? We all know this. But he emphasizes creator life because, of course, for life by him, he means abortion, etc. So you know this from Santorum. Uh, one thing that does bring the altruist, the, the sacrifice element through pretty clearly, although he doesn't say the word sacrifice explicitly in the talk, is when he's talking about money. 
He says that he wants to fight for those who are suffering and being left behind. And he says that they don't want government money. He says instead they want your money. And that sounds strange, right? But he says it's not that they want your money. They want the things that go along with your money. Namely, they want your caring, your mentorship, and your love. And he says these are all things that government can't give. And everybody in the audience has a collective Oh, that's so sweet. The guy with the sweater vest is telling us that, you know, we all have to care for each other, etc. It's fine if you want to be caring and compassionate towards your fellow man. But this idea that you hold it up as the most important thing and, uh, you know, more essentially that you hold it up as a moral duty is just simply unacceptable. But in any event, like I said, it was implicit in his speech where it was explicit is in an interview that he did with Newsmax later. And uh, the headline from Newsmax, it was published on Friday, March 15th. The headline is Santorum, America Needs Leadership That Can Inspire. And here is Santorum speaking about the same essential content as he did in his speech at CPAC. Quote, we have material wealth because of technology, Yet people feel like they're suffering now. And in the speech, Santorum said, you know, they're suffering now more than they were 100 years ago because we're not free, etc. So it was, it was a nice point. But then he says, I make the argument that's because leaders and culture are leading people to think there's nothing to suffer for and that there's no great aim. We have to inspire people so they're willing to make the sacrifices, end quote. So he thinks it's still about sacrifice. We all have to be willing to make sacrifices. And that the only problem with Obama is that he's having you sacrifice for the wrong thing. That's it. No problem. And again, what do I mean by sacrifice here? By sacrifice, I don't mean that you are trading off something in a way of opportunity cost. So for instance, I need to study a lot now so that later I can take the bar exam and become attorney and do very well, right? Um, that's not what I mean. What I mean by a sacrifice is the relinquishment of a higher value for a lesser value or no value at all. And Santorum is all about this because he says, look, we need to sacrifice, we need to suffer, we need to be uh, basically prepared for the afterlife. You know, he talks about the afterlife all the time. Um, you know, this sacrifice is just the unquestioned fact. And then the only question is, do you sacrifice for your fellow man? Do you sacrifice for God? Do you sacrifice for country, the country as envisioned by Rick Santorum? Or do you sacrifice for Obama's vision of America? So it's just, you know, which vision of America are you going to sacrifice for? Bosch here adds, uh, he says that Santorum's idea is that the sacrifice is for strangers, not friends or not family at all. Yeah, for all. And and Bosch, that's right. He was explicit about this both in his speech and in these comments afterwards because the idea is that these people who are suffering, they want your compassion, your mentorship. It's all better if you're a mentor for somebody who's a complete stranger and of, of no value to you. Uh, continuing on with another quote from Santorum from the Newsmax interview. Quote, if we just say we need less government and it's everyone for himself, we won't win elections, 
Santorum said. We have to do what our founders did. Um, he says, uh, which is not just take care of ourselves, but to take care of our fellow Americans, end quote. So just, you know, as Bosch was emphasizing in, in the, the message he sent me just now, fellow Americans. Anybody who's a fellow American has a mortgage on your life, your energy, your money. And that's a vision that Santorum uh, approves of. So he's back here at CPAC. He's peddling sacrifice. If you recall, uh, there was a time during the debates, during all of the Republican primaries, uh, you know, the debates for Republican primaries, that he rejected the idea of the pursuit of happiness, which is enshrined in our founding documents as this selfish right that it is. We have the right to pursue happiness. You can't make other people happy. If you have the right to pursue happiness, you have the right to pursue your own happiness. And what was telling in the speech, I mean, I guess it was valuable to watch Santorum, right, to see how he emphasizes certain things. When he reads off that language from the Declaration of Independence, as I said, he emphasizes creator, life, when he says pursuit of happiness, he almost just kind of whispers it because he doesn't believe in the pursuit of happiness. He knows that the pursuit of happiness is everyone for himself. Now, Saudi fathers didn't mean everyone for himself in the sense of you are entitled to traipse all over everybody else or, you know, if you're some Nietzschean Superman or something, you don't have to, uh, you know, have any regard for the rights or the interests of other people at all. I mean, that that's ridiculous. Your own rational self-interest. The Founding Fathers, we were huge advocates of reason and its role that it would play in guiding human life. It is our reason by which we decide what is in our self-interest. It is our reason by which we decide what things are required to sustain our lives. And we need to be free to do it. And we are not going to be free to do it under a Santorum administration any more than we would be under, under an Obama administration. If you remember, Santorum also had a huge plan to back up manufacturing, right? He wanted to go ahead and bring manufacturers back into our country by giving them all sorts of subsidies and tax incentives and who knows what. That is the same sort of idea of distorting the free market that Obama wanted to do. He just has his own pet projects. He's a big government Republican, just like any of those. I've got a call here I'm going to go ahead and take. I'll breathe for a second. Hi, who's this? Hi, Amy. It's Debbie. Hi, Debbie. So are you a huge fan of Santorum 2016? Woo-woo! Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> definitely not. Uh, he just makes my blood run cold. And um, and I wanted to see what you think about um, him in terms of the dim, dim theory. Uh, I kind of see him as um, maybe like an M2, but I'm not an expert on, on that. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Okay, so Deborah is asking about the DIM theory, which is the DIM hypothesis. This is from Leonard Peikoff's book by that title, The DIM Hypothesis. And what she – oh, someone in the chat room says I'm getting excited and it scares them. Uh, but but what she's asking about is is this idea of an M2, and an M2 is – an extreme religious totalitarian in effect that somebody who wants to completely 
misintegrate, M2 is for misintegration, but integrate around the idea of a religious ideology that would completely take over. And yes, I I, I see that Santorum could be that person. I, I just would... I mean, I was going to say more than cringe. It just it, it it does make my blood boil like you to think of Santorum as being the 2016 candidate. From what I understand, I've read just a little bit of the scuttlebutt around the reaction to Santorum in you know during his talk was fairly lukewarm. Uh, but you know, in the Newsmax interview, they're asking him about a potential 2016 presidential run, and the story says that. He says it's much too early to start seriously thinking about it, although he says he's heartened by the encouragement he received at CPAC. That horrifies me. Uh, I don't know if you know, but he got third place in the straw poll. Oh, no, I didn't know that. I'm glad he didn't get first, but still, I mean, the fact that he wasn't run out of there on a rail is, is uh, still upsetting. He was uh, He was slightly ahead of Chris Christie, which I think is kind of scary. Yeah. Definitely. Do you happen to know who came in first? Oh, yeah. First was Rand Paul. So Rand Paul got 25%. Rubio got 23%. And then in third place was Santorum with 8%, and then Christie was behind him. So, uh, you know, it's still, he's quite a bit behind Paul and Rubio. But the idea of Santorum getting encouragement to run for president again. I mean, I guess, you know, go ahead and put him up in those debates again and and use him as a punching bag. That that's fine. But uh, you know, this he he says he's open to running in 2016. That means you know he's running, right? And he and he was one of the people who during their talk, I don't know if you've seen them do this now. Uh they give a little message to the audience to say text a certain word to such and such string of five numbers. So I forget what he said that you were supposed to text to him, you know, something wonderful like suffer. I don't know. It wasn't suffer, but, you know, <laughs> sacrifice, test sacrifice, you know, text sacrifice to 66666 or whatever, right? Um, or I don't Jesus know. or something like that. Yeah, text <laughs> Jesus. That would be fine, too. He made plenty of religious references. And, I mean, that's fine if somebody wants to talk about God and their religious and everything. But I don't like the idea that he has such a uh you know a hatred for separation of church and state i think he said separation of church and state makes him throw up yeah yep he said that he makes him want to throw up or something like that yeah right right um he he made a point during his talk of emphasizing that in the Constitution, or I think, no, it was in the Declaration, that God is mentioned four times as if that really means something, right? I mean, I say God, and I'm an atheist. I, I say the word God. I'll right, say God, and then... Or, or Lord only knows. You know, I'll use that expression, and, and I'm an atheist. Who cares? Right, or God help me, or, you yeah. know, I mean, we, we, we use the Christian calendar. Uh, the days of the week are named after some of them after Norse gods. It doesn't really mean anything at that point. It's just it's just sort of a convention that nobody bothered to change. Deborah, do you agree with me that if the conservatives keep calling for sacrifice, that they are going to fail to distinguish themselves from Barack Obama, and they're just going to keep setting themselves up for failure? Yeah, I in a way I do. I mean, I, I do think there are some factions within the Republican Party of sort of hardcore evangelicals who are excited by that kind of talk. 
like by the Rick Santorum types. And um, I, I don't think that, that, that that's a mainstream thing. And it certainly doesn't attract me. And there also is kind of a, I think, with growing strengths, at least in my non-expert opinion, uh, more of like a libertarian thread uh, of a sort of a libertarian faction, if you will, within the Republican Party that is a lot less, um, like you said, they don't emphasize sacrifice. They don't talk about it as a good thing, and they don't, I don't think in their hearts, see it as a good thing, although they don't speak out against it enough. Right. Um, I I think that it's, yeah, I mean, it does sort of fail to distinguish them from the left, but when they say it in the religious context, then it just leaves you with this choice between two different forms of suicide as to who you're going to vote for. Yeah, it's like which part of your body or your brain or whatever you want to have cut off. I mean, that's what choice you end up having with these people, and that that's the thing that really gets frustrating. You know, Deborah, we we were t- you're talking about the libertarian wing, and I, I sort of see Alan West. I mean, obviously he's a conservative, but I've kind of seen him as a little bit more of a, a renegade type and somebody that I've really liked when I've heard him, and I've heard him explicitly reference Ayn Rand, for example. He was at a, a you know a convention where he was talking to an audience of conservatives, and he of his own accord mentioned Ayn Rand. He did some great interviews recently with your own book of the Ayn Rand Institute. I've really, really liked him. And then, I, did you hear the quotation uh, from his speech this week? No, but I have heard him make really religious-sounding comments in the past. Is that what it is? Well, it's it's about the issue of sacrifice. Listen to this. He says, "Quote: I am sick and tired of having of, of excuse me of hearing that it is our moral duty to serve the state, because conservatives believe it is our moral duty to serve our fellow man, regardless of race, sex, affiliation, or creed. And when we serve, we believe it is the state's duty to get out of the way." End quote. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty bad. I mean, obviously he thinks that the role for self-sacrifice is supposed to be private, that the government isn't supposed to get involved and compel it, et cetera. So, we, you know, we agree that much with Alan West. But if he concedes the moral ground that way, I mean, what can he do when someone from the left points at examples of market failure or anything else and you know, tries to say, how can you defend the free market when the free market has left these poor people behind or it's created this horrible inefficiency and, you know, there's not enough competition here or blah, 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 whatever it is that all these people point out when they point out market failure. If if he's an altruist at heart, what defense can he have against policies like that? Yeah, it's like they turned it into a, a nuance, like, well, yeah, I agree that you're morally right to want us to sacrifice for these people who are poor or whatever, but it's just that I think we should be free to choose. And, like, it turns into like, – it, it's almost like if I were to say to the government, you know, I agree that murder is wrong, but I just don't think you should make it a law that I can't commit murder. It should be my choice not to commit murder. You know, I mean, the, it, that's just stupid, and, and I can't imagine that sort of an argument getting any kind of traction. If you really take it morally seriously, then I think it's kind of the same thing. 
Right, right. If, if if that's what the moral is, the moral is to serve your fellow man, then what is wrong with the state just making it a whole lot more efficient and automatic for you to serve your fellow man through the tax code and various other methods of redistribution? Why not? Yeah, uh, there isn't really uh, – you just can't make a – if somebody couldn't – on that ground, somebody would have by now because they've sure tried. Right. Right. Uh, now, in the chat room, they say Alan West is the best and that he isn't an altruist. I mean, this is Gigi in the chat room. I, I just quoted from Alan West, though. Alan West says conservatives, he considers himself among them. I believe that's the context in which he's speaking. He says conservatives believe it is our moral duty to serve our fellow man, regardless of race, sex, affiliation, or creed which I think means he means that you should have to do it sometimes even when it's a sacrifice, that that is our moral duty. That is the definition of an altruist. An altruist is somebody who believes that it is moral to put other people above yourself. Alan West is, if he believes what he says right here, an altruist. Don't you think, Debbie, or am I wrong? You know, I just think it's a mixed case. I think that in some contexts he is and in some contexts he's not. Like a lot of people that, you know, you can't be consistent with it. And I think that a lot of these people, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that he's he's just a mixed case. But based on these statements, he's definitely in altruist mode at the very least when he made those statements. I mean, if you, if you think about it, suppose he is inconsistent. He's got all these inconsistent premises. The one that's going to win out is going to be the one that's the most consistent. And can you see Alan West having any sort of completely consistent basis, you know, uh, defense of rational selfishness within him? Definitely not. No, yeah. I mean, and you've just provided us with proof that that's not the case. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, if this goes on in him long enough, at the, I, I was going to say at the end of the day, but that was a banned phrase according to Greg Gutfeld, so I better not do that. It's a horrible <laughs> thing to say. But <laughs> and, and you can't say in the long run. What you have to say is something like, eventually the inconsistencies in, in Alan West's thinking will be pointed out to him enough that he would have to decide what is most important to him. And if he is truly adhering to religious values, like he says he is here, and he truly does believe it's his moral duty to serve his fellow man, that's the direction in uh, which he's going to be pushed. Uh, Deborah, go ahead. If you want to hold and chime in on something else, uh, do so again. I've got another call I'm going to take right now. Hi, who's this? Hi, Amy. This is Mark. Hi. Are you a first-time caller? Yeah, I wanted to make a... I am a first-time caller. Well, welcome to the show. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. I wanted to make a comment about Santorum and Alan West. I actually called before we started talking about West, and then you brought him up, so it's perfect. Um, Yeah, I watch um, Alan West's, like, online TV show, Next Generation, and he interviewed Rick Santorum, and... um, Rick Santorum did the whole emphasis about endowed by our creator with rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but he didn't whisper pursuit of happiness. He elaborated on it. He said that at the time that our founders wrote that, the pursuit of happiness and the word happiness had a different definition. He claimed that our founders interpreted happiness as serving God, and therefore oh. when, they wrote that, when, when they wrote that, that's what they meant. So far from shying away from it, he just redefined it. Wow. Yeah, I mean, if you can't win, just redefine it. And, it, oh, that is that is just 
just priceless. So did he have any citations to any of the founding documents or the writings of the founding fathers, uh, any of the Federalist Papers, you know, things like that to back up his assertion that that's what happiness meant at the time? No, he did not. But Alan West just sort of agreed. I mean, he didn't really come out and say, yeah, that's exactly right. I tried to make that point myself. He didn't say that, but he, he certainly glossed over the point. He didn't object to it. You know, I could imagine that it would be sort of difficult to keep your train of thought while you're sitting there in the middle of CPAC amongst everybody else interviewing people, and you've maybe got a list of questions, and then you let the speaker go, and you have to focus and then also think about what question you want to ask next. So maybe Alan West was a little bit bowled over by this attempt uh, to redefine happiness, but I, I, have, I think that's the first time I've ever heard anybody define happiness that way. Have you ever heard it before? Um, it sort of reminds me of the Marxists, how the Marxists say that happiness, that their happiness is one with, like, society's happiness. They're, they want to do whatever society wants to do. Um, I remember, like, hearing Leo Kovalin, no, no, not Leo, um, Andre say something like that in um, We the Living. But, I mean, that's not religion, that's, that's Marxism, but it sort of reminds me of the way they reinterpret happiness. Right. So any, anybody who wants you to sacrifice is going to redefine happiness in such a way that you are supposed to find happiness in suffering for the sake of whatever goal they enshrine as supreme in front of you. And Santorum just has a, a different vision of America that he wants to enshrine as supreme. And if you suffer in this life, you shouldn't feel too badly because you're going to have eternal happiness in the next life, so no problem, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you for calling in. Did you have anything else before I go on? Uh, nope. Your show's okay. great. Thanks. Okay, thanks very much. Love to hear yep. first-time callers. And people, if you do want to join in, at 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. And people in the chat room are talking about the good old days of Goldwater. A lot of people do like Goldwater. And yet, I think people with a lot of different mixed premises can like Goldwater. And then the question is, can a number of us who share a lot of different premises come to stand behind a candidate who will not call for sacrifice of any kind? And do such candidates exist out there? As I said, uh, it was funny. I was I was looking for CPAC speech transcripts, and I stumbled upon that old speech from I think it was 2009. Rush Limbaugh. He gave a really excellent talk uh, where he talked about you just living your own life, and that this is one of the ways that conservatives can win. And he didn't call for sacrifice at all in any way, shape, or form. Of course, he didn't explicitly reject or point out where his fellow conservatives call for sacrifice either. And that's the thing that I think would make an objectivist unique. And that's why I would like to go to CPAC, and I would like to challenge some of these people who would like to run for our presidency and ask them what they truly think our moral duty is. Because if they think our moral duty is to sacrifice for our fellow man, then it's just another step before you're asked to sacrifice by the state. Why can't the state come in and make your sacrifice more efficient? Uh, one thing I wanted to mention that uh, Bosch pointed out to me about um, Cruz. Cruz has only been senator for a few months, 
So probably he wasn't really going to do well in the straw poll. We didn't really get a sense of how he would do. He did get a very nice audience reaction to his speech, and I think with good reason. Cruz did not speak of sacrifice the way that uh, the other uh, people at CPAC did at all. I didn't even detect any bit of it at all. He comes out strong at the beginning. He says, if standing for liberty in the Constitution makes me a wacko bird, then count me as a proud wacko bird. Wacko bird, of course, is the phrase used by John McCain to refer to Rand Paul and others who stood with him during the filibuster, people who actually dare to stand up and say something on principle about the Constitution. Imagine that. Cruz did give the keynote address at CPAC, which I thought was a very good sign. He also said he's not a defeatist, and he went on to summarize different ways in which the uh, GOP has been winning recently. He recounted the whole confrontation with Holder and how he made the point that, no, I don't trust you, and I don't trust any future Democrats or Republicans, not Democrats or Republicans, with and unchecked power to use drones to strike American citizens who do not pose an imminent threat to the United States, strike them while they are on U.S. soil. Remember, that was the whole point of the filibuster. Uh, He recounted the filibuster. He talked about the debt of gratitude that he had to Rand Paul because he had the opportunity to read all sorts of wonderful things. Unfortunately, during his speech at CPAC, he did not mention Ayn Rand. If you recall, Ted Cruz did mention Ayn Rand twice during his remarks at the filibuster, at one point saying that Ayn Rand was one of his heroes. And I do think that we see the influence because what he emphasized in his speech were all the Bill of Rights in the Constitution that he wants to defend – And plus, he says that we need to, as conservatives, right, if we're all going to call ourselves some sort of conservative, who knows what conservative means anymore, Uh, but you have to be a champion of growth and opportunity. Those are the two things he talked about, defending the Constitution and being a champion of growth and opportunity. He did not talk about religious values. The one thing he did talk about was defending religious freedom that the government should not be able to force the Catholic Church, for example, to change its values in light of a certain government policy, a.k.a., say, Obamacare, right? Why should a Catholic hospital be forced to perform abortions, for example? That is completely wrong. So I completely agree with whatever Ted Cruz said with respect to religious freedom in his CPAC speech. Uh, He, Like I said, he's putting the emphasis in the right place. And he is funny. He can speak without a teleprompter. In fact, he was just walking around. He didn't even stand at a podium. And he talked about repealing the right stuff. He wants to repeal Obamacare. He wants to repeal Dodd-Frank. He wants to eliminate corporate welfare. He says he wants us to build the Keystone Pipeline. He wants to rein in the EPA. Of course, I'd rather see them eliminate the EPA. Uh, He wants to abolish the Department of Education which I thought was excellent, audit the Fed, stop the quantitative expansion, you know, this endless printing of money that causes all this inflation and devalues the money in our retirement accounts and in our pockets. Uh, But one thing that he said about the Department of Education, which I thought was so good, this is what he said in his speech. He said, education is too important for it to be governed by bureaucrats in Washington taking choices away from parents and kids. 
And he says that we have to champion school choice, which if you believe in school choice, you see it as a step towards abolishing the government schools. He calls the school choice issue the civil rights issue of the next generation, end quote. So he sees how important education is, and he sees the importance of getting government out of the way. He also said explicitly that we need to stand with Israel, and he says we need to stop sending foreign aid to nations that hate us. And he explicitly cited Obama's $250 million to Egypt, given with no strings attached. Uh, Then he gave his little plug, and then at the end, when he was trying to rouse people, he says basically we have the choice of surrendering or standing up. And what did he say that you have to surrender or stand up for? Liberty, guns, drones, spending, you know, against the spending problem, debt for the Constitution. He did not say stand up for our quote-unquote values. So he didn't even use the vague term of values to even, you know, get us confused that he might be trying to push some abortion thing or whatever. He did at the end say God bless. Okay, that's fine. I like it. But... I um, I am impressed with him so far. He can come across as a little bit slick, but I actually think he comes across as a bit of a geek, but one who is very rehearsed and polished. So I don't have any problem at this point with Cruz. You might think, okay, well, with the EPA, he doesn't go far enough, or with going ahead and, and putting forth that amendment to defund Obamacare. He didn't go far enough because it wasn't for full repeal, but he'd already put forth a piece of legislation to try to repeal Obamacare, okay? Um, He was just trying in the context of the continuing resolution to get Obamacare defunded. So I, I was heartened. The other person who gave a good speech at CPAC, and here I read a transcript, was Rand Paul. And again, Rand Paul won the straw poll at CPAC with 25%. Doesn't necessarily mean that Rand Paul would be the favorite if we had to have an election today. Uh, You know, CPAC polls can be skewed in certain ways depending on who's attending and things like that. But in his speech, everything sounded good. He gave a little bit of a nod to Israel because he called for cutting the funding to Egypt. And I believe he spoke about somebody in Egypt calling for the destruction of Israel. So basically he was criticizing us being associated with somebody who called for the, you know, the destruction of Israel. Good sign. He just like Cruz, did not make any mention of sacrifice. He didn't mention any of the religious social issues like abortion and things like that. He says he's going to propose a five-year balanced budget. Of course, it would be best if they balanced the budget this year, but that's five years better than Paul Ryan. So we would like that. He also explicitly called for eliminating the Department of Education. Again, this is a very, very important issue to get government out of our schools. So Totally behind him on that. He called for a flat tax. Sounds better than the current tax system. His flat tax is 17%, which sounds high, but it's still probably less than what we're paying now. So that could be okay. Uh, You know, he says we should leave more money in the hands of those who earned it. You know, he, he that's that's language that's better than most politicians, but it's language that shies away from leave money in the hands of the people who own that money, whose money it is. You earned it, therefore it is yours. You know, leave it there. Don't steal it. I mean, really what you say is, let's have government stop stealing it. And he didn't use the word steal. He says, leave it there. 
you know, pretty good. But here's here's the key. And here's something that I would like to have heard out of Ted Cruz's mouth. Like I said, Ted Cruz focused on the Bill of Rights and the Constitution and on issues of economic growth. Rand Paul does that, gives a little bit of a good nod to good stuff in foreign policy, and then says the following. Listen to this. He says, quote, Our party is encumbered by an inconsistent approach to freedom. The new GOP, the GOP that will win again, will need to embrace liberty in both the economic and personal spheres, end quote. I thought that was excellent. I thought that was really good. So as I said, as far as Rand Paul goes in this speech that he gave at CPAC this year, excellent. I am still nervous about what he would intend to do in the realm of abortion. I don't know exactly what he means to do in terms of foreign policy. He is going out of his way to explicitly mention Israel in a favorable way, uh, you know, to distance himself from his father. I think that's good. I think that's promising. I want to hear more. So I did give you some good news from CPAC. And the good news is the content of speeches from Cruz and Rand Paul. The bad news is that Santorum, who was one of the top three in the CPAC straw poll, and also Alan West, who was one of the candidates who I have seen as most promising, one of the politicians who has been most promising in the GOP, comes out explicitly for sacrifice to your fellow man as a moral ideal. So let's go ahead and do some, not even hyperbole, let's just talk now about what sacrifice brought to its most consistent, logical, and revulsifying and disgustipating conclusion actually means. And by that, I mean, let's talk about abortion. And I don't mean that abortion is wrong and that if you abort, you're sacrificing the innocent fetus to the wishes of the mother, blah, blah, blah. I believe in the right to abortion. And just to clarify, I had someone on Twitter actually ask me extensively about abortion. You try to have a conversation about a complex issue like abortion on Twitter, but uh, Corey, I believe, is is the name of one of my followers on Twitter, and he was at length basically disagreeing with what he saw as the objectivist position on abortion and the idea that abortion is moral. Now, Objectivists, I think, have the ability, and I mean, I I myself believe, abortion is sometimes moral, sometimes not. Uh, I think abortion is probably a lot of the time not moral if, for instance, it is used as a mere policy of birth control, right? Uh, If all you're doing, you you know, this is the stereotype of the, the conservative's nightmare, right? The conservative's nightmare is somebody who treats abortion casually as if it is a form of birth control. And no, that is not the case. Uh, Abortion in terms of politics should always be legal. Why? Because the fetus is not an actual human being. It is a potential human being. By the time you reach the stage of viability, whereby the fetus could survive on its own outside the womb, well, well, you know, with some medical assistance. By the time you reach viability, then we could start talking about whether there's an issue of rights. But insofar as you have something living 
parasitically in your body, rights just don't come into play. Morality can come into play. Morality can, but rights, no. So suppose there's a woman and she finds out that she's pregnant. I don't know, she's a month pregnant or something. And she's just too lazy, you know, to schedule her abortion. She doesn't want the child and she just waits and waits and waits. And then she goes and she goes and has her abortion. Or the reason that she got pregnant in the first place was because she was too lazy to pursue birth control. And she just doesn't have the respect for her body that, you know, she just says, oh, yeah, if I get pregnant, I'll just get an abortion and not even worry about the long range consequences to her own body. Clearly, this is immoral. This is horrible. Uh you know, if you're having abortion for some kind of frivolous reason, you wait around and you have an abortion later than you otherwise could have done when you could have done it earlier. This is this is terrible. So uh, I I think abortion can sometimes be immoral. It can be difficult in some cases to decide whether a person who pursues an abortion is acting immorally. But certainly the state should not get involved and uh, penalize abortions. Uh, certainly they also shouldn't force abortions. And that's what they're doing in China. Many of you are familiar with the policy of the Chinese government where they allow a couple to have only one child. And if you have a child already, you will be forced to use contraception. Uh, if you happen to get pregnant and you have only one child, or you already have your child, they will force you to have an abortion. I have an article here from the Financial Times Last updated March 15, 2013, says Chinese doctors have performed more than 330 million abortions since the government implemented a controversial family planning policy 40 years ago, according to official data from the health ministry. The one-child policy has been the subject of a heated debate about its economic consequences as the population ages. Forced abortions and sterilizations have also been criticized by human rights campaigners, uh, the, uh, such as Chen Guangcheng, the blind legal activist who sought refuge at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing last year. Uh, China first introduced measures to limit the size of the population in 1971, encouraging couples to have fewer children. The one-child rule, with exceptions for ethnic minorities and some rural families, got to have exceptions, right, uh, was implemented at the end of the decade. Since 1971, they've performed 336 million abortions and 196 million sterilizations. They have also inserted 403 million IUDs. It's a normal birth control procedure in the West, says the article, but it's one that local officials often force on women in China. The Chinese government has estimated that without the restrictions, the country's 1.3 billion population would be 30% larger. So imagine this, a totalitarian government that calls on you to sacrifice for your fellow man, and the form of sacrifice is that you will have only one child. And if that means forcing you to undergo an abortion procedure or forcing you to have an intrauterine device inserted just to make sure you'll never get pregnant. If that isn't sacrifice, I don't know what is, especially if you desire to keep your body intact and maybe not have an IUD stuck in there. I mean, those can have complications. They can cause infections and all sorts of other things. Suppose you want another child. No, the government will not let you in China. This is the, I think, one of the most horrific ends 
that a totalitarian regime can can do. Uh, force a woman to undergo an abortion, force a woman to undergo a sterilization procedure, or to have an IUD inserted. I, you know, if you just try to picture what that actually means in practice, that's it. Now, this is terrible. This is the logical end of leftist policies. Why? Because if you're going to have a communist-style regime, a regime that takes from each according to his ability, gives to each according to his need, you are going to run out of wealth, money, resources, values that, that sustain human life. You're going to need to cut the population. On the other hand, what do the Republicans want? What does Santorum want to do with regard to abortion? Santorum wants to force women to carry babies to term regardless of their wishes, regardless if the pregnancy was a product of rape, regardless of whether the fetus that the woman is carrying is going to be so horribly deformed that all the resulting baby can have in store for it is a brief life of suffering and eventual death with long treatments in the hospital, right? Uh, I don't know if you saw interviews with Santorum. Santorum and his wife have a, a baby with a trisomy. I forget which trisomy it is, but their child, their their girl is uh, going to probably have only a very short lifespan. She's a few years old. She is uh very mentally you know retarded i guess you're not allowed to say retarded anymore but she is not developing at all uh like a normal human being and santorum has actually said that he believes that she is in many ways better than us why because she's always happy you know the touch of care isn't brought to her face etc he wants on the other you know so the, these are the two extremes this is really what you get to choose if you choose a religious totalitarian versus a leftist totalitarian. A leftist totalitarian regime, forced abortions. A religious totalitarian regime would force you to carry the child to term regardless of the consequences. I think both are wrong. I, I reject both. And I, I believe in a policy of keeping abortion legal. I would believe in a policy of trying to, of course, minimize abortions if you can. How? Maybe through advanced genetic testing to try to avoid pregnancies that are going to result in children with life-threatening and uh, intelligence-threatening deformities. Uh, the other things you could do is try to educate people about birth control so they don't end up using abortions as birth control. But this idea that you're going to have government involved in a decision to abort one way or the other, it is calling for sacrifice. And that's what a sacrifice means at the at the two extremes. Now, what did I mean when I said at the beginning of the show, anonymity and adoption in Germany? Germany has, I think, a very interesting law here. They are going to allow a woman who is going through an unwanted pregnancy to give birth in the hospital under a false name. So talk about a government you know, having a policy that's going to enable people to, if they choose to, carry an unwanted pregnancy to term, keep it a secret, give the baby up for adoption, and yet do it in a safe way getting proper medical care. German cabinet 
I've got an article here from BBC News Europe, 13th of March, 2013. The German, German cabinet has agreed for a bill allowing women to go through unwanted pregnancies to give birth in the hospital under a false name. They are trying to reduce unsafe births and to give mothers an alternative to abandoning unwanted newborns in the so-called baby boxes. And you might think, okay, well, that's another thing you could do is you could just go drop your baby in one of these baby boxes, these safe drop-your-baby locations at hospitals. But if you do that, it is completely anonymous and then the child could never, ever track you down. Under this particular German law, after the child is 16... The child could be given information by which the child, if he or she chooses, could track down the mother. So this is a way that the German government is trying to make it uh, a little better, a little safer for you, if, if you so choose, to carry an unwanted pregnancy to term and to give up your child for adoption. Uh, government, of course, should not be preventing you from doing these things if a hospital wants to allow women to come in under a false name and do the same thing, that should have been allowed. I mean, why this wasn't allowed in Germany before, but, you know, good for the German government for getting out of the way and for allowing women to do this. This is the way to go if you want to minimize abortions. Okay, now what do we have here in the chat room? Uh, Stephanie says that uh, China forcing abortions is not different in principle from outlawing outlawing abortions for all reasons. And no, it it isn't. I mean, these these are basically the same. You would be asking the person to sacrifice, and it's just the method of sacrifice. It's just the type of suffering that is different. And if you think you wouldn't suffer, if you were forced to bring a child to term who you didn't want, you would be at least suffering for the nine months. If you gave the child up for adoption, you would be suffering with the what if your whole life. If you didn't give the child up for adoption, you might be under tremendous hardship, especially you would be under tremendous hardship if your baby was born with a trisomy or Down syndrome or uh, various conditions. So this is a uh, sacrifice both ways. And that's, that's really what someone like Santorum is holding up to you. Sacrifice for the sake of Obama's end, which in the extreme is going to mean China or sacrifice for his end, which means all sorts of things that we haven't even yet seen. Happiness. I love, I love what Mark contributed there, that redefinition of happiness as serving God's end. It was, it was excellent. I want to give you a little bit of good news before we go. Uh, this was sent in by Jonathan Honu, the listener to the show and also a great contributor to Fox News. This is about the influence of Ayn Rand, a blogger by the name of Andrew Carell at Mediaite.com was writing about Senator Rob Portman announcing you know, that his son is gay and that he supports same-sex marriage. And then the American Family Association's Brian Fisher coming back and criticizing him. And then here's the money quote from Carell. Carell is saying back to Fisher, he says, uh, if one thing that people who legislate based on faith should realize, it's that their policy prescriptions are absolutely not based on reason. Faith is the antithesis of reason. When you base government policy on homosexuality around a magical ancient text that tells you homosexuality is a stone, homosexuality is a stonable offense, it's laughable to suggest that you have the reason edge in the debate, end quote. So we see the influence of Ayn Rand right there. 
Everybody, we've reached the end of the hour. I thank you for tuning in today and for participating both on the phone and in the chat room. If you like the show, go ahead and leave a comment. Actually, if you don't like the show, do the same thing. Go to DontLetItGo.com and leave a comment there. Uh, You can also join the Facebook page, Don't Let It Go Unheard. You can follow me on Twitter, Amy Peikoff. You can follow here on Blog Talk Radio by clicking the follow button for my show. But the most important thing, if you do enjoy the show, is please spread the word. This show spreads by word of mouth. My mouth, even though I talk nonstop for an hour, is only so big. So thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. Have a good night.